even if you're dealing with the same individual, if that individual is buying a DIY digital course versus if that individual is investing in a group coaching program, their expectations of the experience, their expectations of access to the creator, their expectations of what support looks like is totally different. Welcome to Imperfect Action. I'm Steph Taylor. For years, I read all the books, downloaded all the freebies, and did all the courses. But it wasn't until I started taking Imperfect Action that my business had its first million-dollar year. Imperfect Action is about doing things before you're ready, prioritizing consistent action over perfect action, and moving forward, even when you're not sure you're doing it right. On this show, you can expect mindset advice, actionable marketing tips, and strategies to build a business that brings you more profit, more freedom, and even more joy. Are you on the list to get my daily biz boosters? Every day, I'll send you a bite-sized prompt designed to help you grow your business in a more intentional way. Sign up at stephtaylor.co forward slash DBB or at the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome back to Imperfect Action. This is episode 623. Today, I'm chatting with a friend of mine, Jerisha Hawk, who is a sought-after business coach and sales expert. She went from her corporate role as an engineer to more than a million in profit in the space of five years. That's profit, not sales. And she's done all of that with organic marketing, a really lean team, and super high profit margins. Today, we're chatting all about group programs because this is her jam. Like She works to help experts launch and scale leveraged group coaching programs And today we're chatting about the differences in launching a group program versus a course and the differences in how you deliver them, where people tend to go wrong with group coaching program, pricing, vetting people and curating a really good group. And we're also talking a little bit about the state of the online coaching space in 2023. This was a fun chat, and I know you're going to learn a lot from this episode if you've been thinking about launching any kind of group program. So let's jump into the interview. Eurasia, welcome to Imperfect Action Podcast. I'm so excited to have you. It's been, like we were saying before we hit record, it's been three years since we actually had a conversation, and so much has changed in our businesses since we met back in LA in January 2020. And I really want to talk a little bit about your journey. So before we hit record, you mentioned how you'd been over the last few years doubling your profit each year, tripling your profit some years, but rewind a few years and you were an engineer. So share a little bit about what this journey looked like from who you were back then to who you are now and where your business is at now. Yeah, Steph, I'm so glad to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, it's amazing how these like full circle moments happen. You meet somebody three years ago and then three years later, you're like still in the thick of things together. Um, but my path has been, I guess, like very non-traditional. I mean, even prior to becoming an engineer, I've always had a experience in sales. Um, I used to do auto shows for Chrysler in college. Like if you've ever gone to an auto show, there's usually predominantly women on the showroom floor either selling cars, giving information about the vehicles or um, doing like product specialist like presentations on the cars. 
Um, so I used to do that in even in my very first engineering job. I used to go out to rural neighborhoods that didn't have natural gas and I had to convince 70% of the neighborhood to uh, contribute to a portion of the pipeline in order for us to build the natural gas to their home. So I've always had like this uh, underlying thread of like sales and messaging and understanding what influences how people make buying decisions, even though I never had a traditional sales job. Um, and then I went to school, got my civil engineering degree. I started my first business in my senior year of school because I ran out of financial aid. So that was my first real like toe in the pool of entrepreneurship. Um, and it worked out well. I made like 50 grand in that one year, paid wow. my tuition for the year, bought a Ford Fusion and went to Thailand and shut the business down. Looking back, I'm like, I should have kept it open or sold it or did something, <laughs> but young and didn't know anything. Um, and then went to, got into traditional corporate America. And that's where I was a pipeline engineer for about three and a half years before I transitioned into running this business full time. So that's like the quick and dirty, but there's always been this sprinkle of sales in like these hodgepodge, um, short term roles that I had in college. Um, and then like a traditional corporate engineering experience, but I was not the stereotypical engineer and to running an online coaching business. And, and like you've seen such quick growth as well, like a million dollars profit in under five years. Like some businesses or many businesses struggle to make a million in sales in five years. So how do you think you were able to grow so quickly and stay so profitable at the same time? It's really interesting that you asked that because I was just chatting with my clients of like, you know, I've been in business full time now for this is my sixth year and I've never not had a profitable year. Like I've, it's, I've never lost money in this business. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, I started off my very first year. We did, a, I did 150,000 and then doubled to 300 and then a little more than doubled right under tripled to 800. And then the year after that, I did 1.4 million. And then the following year, I did over a million dollars profit in one calendar year. And. Oh. I was, it's, it, it, sometimes when I say it out, it takes me in this moment to like recognize like that's not, that's something to celebrate. That's something of significance. Um, but it's just fun that you asked the question because I think one of the things that I had a lot of constraints when I started the business because I was still working full time. Um, and I did not have like, uh, I wasn't married. I didn't have a partner. So I was, I was my own financial safety net. And I had a lot of constraints because I was working a, a demanding nine to five job. I had right around the time I started this, I had just been promoted to lead engineer of a $400 million pipeline project. So it was wow. biggest program at the company at the time. And it had some of the largest um, like executive visibility. Like we were meeting, you know, we had to give a lot of information up to the board. Like, so I had a lot of visibility on that role. So I think having a lot of constraints when I first started, it it didn't give me the luxury of being able to chase shiny objects early on. I didn't I didn't have the extra time to just like, oh, what is like what is she doing? Oh, I'm gonna like go jump to that strategy or oh, what are they like I didn't have that luxury in the beginning. And I think that when you are when you do have a lot of constraints, um, or maybe you have kids and like you you just have time constraints that are outside of necessarily your control, it, it forced me to focus. So I think early on, that was probably one of the the biggest advantages I had. In the beginning, I thought it was a disadvantage because I'm like, I don't have money. I don't have, the, I don't, I don't have excess. Like I don't have 
extra money to play around with different ideas. I don't have extra money just to keep throwing at courses, but never consuming and applying it. I don't have extra time just to be chasing shiny objects. Like most of us, you know, it's common for that to happen. So I think that was a really big thing early on. Um, and I think the second thing outside of like just constraints was um, really understanding the psychology of how people make buying decisions. So that's language I've been able to articulate over time. Um, but in the beginning, I think, you know, like I look at all the jobs or the positions I've been in, I wasn't qualified on paper for them. Even any of my engineering jobs, like getting into corporate America on paper, I was I didn't have the GPA. I wasn't qualified. I didn't have the internship experiences that like my peers had. Um, I used to like speed a lot in college. So I had too many speeding tickets. <laughs> and that was criteria not to get a job at that company. Like literally, it's like, girl, you got too many speeding tickets. You're like a safety risk. We're not going to hire you. It was that Ford Fusion. You know I mean? Like I was pushing to the limit. I've never said that on it before that I had had a lot of speeding tickets in college. Um, but I, I, that was a qualification to not get the job. And I think, you know, something that I've always this underlying skill set is just understand what are, what is my unique value that I can bring? What is my unique perspective that nobody, no other candidate will be able to, to introduce? And how do I understand what matters most to the person who is in the decision making seat? And how can I find alignment with where I'm at, what skills I have, what their needs are, and really be able to build that bridge and articulate my value to to create that alignment? And I think those two things, like that skill set of understanding what is the need of the other person that is is the is the decision maker and what is it that I have, um, that's how I started selling my first few offers uh, when I didn't have testimonials, don't have an MBA, like I didn't have any certifications. Um, so I feel like those two skill sets and, um, I think maybe over time, a third thing that, that I think is, has continued to allow me to maintain my success is understanding the economy at large and how that impacts our online education industry in the micro. I think sometimes in the, what I see happen with, uh, folks in the online education space is we, we, I see people function like we're in a silo that like nothing in the world in the normal quote unquote air quote world around us will impact us. Oh like, yes. You know what I mean? It's like, yep. oh, like <laughs> we act like, like we're dysfunctioning in our own economy, which our economy is really unique. But I think when you can understand, um, just understanding business cycles and understanding how the larger economy impacts our industry, I think that's what's allowed me to maintain my success, like, you know, going into six years. So I don't know. Those are like three things I would say has position me to have continuous success year over year. Oh, I love that. And like, can we just celebrate the fact that like a million dollars profit in one year is not a small deal. Like we always hear about people having the million dollar years, but then they've spent $990,000 on Facebook yeah. ads <laughs> to have the million dollar year. So like a million dollars profit is so different to a million dollars in revenue. And I think that is that is like an incredible achievement. I hope, I hope you popped some champagne or booked a vacation or something I mean, to celebrate that. It, it took me a year to, I mean, full honesty, like it took me a full year to really settle into that reality. Um, I didn't dream beyond that. You know, I'm like, okay, one day I want to make a million dollars. And then I did it. And then it was like, that was a fluke. Okay. Do it again, but make a million dollars profit for it to be quote unquote real. And when I did that, it, it, it caused me to come into great conflict with my identity. Um, because I have, a, I have, I had attached so much of my identity to this destination 
And once I had reached the destination, I'm like, who am I? Because it's like, this can't be, this isn't the end of the road, but it's also like, you know, I think I had made, I think a lot of the time we make up this, this identity, we make up this fallacy in our mind of what this destination, what achieving this goal is going to mean for who it is, who we are, what that means, how we're perceived, how we view ourselves. Um, and it, it was a weird feeling. Like I'm still kind of processing through it, but it, you know, it was something I celebrated. I did like a full rebrand and got my website done so that we actually looked like none of my stuff on my website before, none of my offers were on there. All of the information on my website was totally inaccurate. Like it was terrible. Um, but we were still making millions. But so I was like, let me make all of my assets that people should normally be looking at, make it look like what it is that we're actually doing. So I did all that. And, but I'm like, it's, it's been a, I don't know. It's caused me to go into a lot of like soul searching once I hit that mark. I don't think enough people talk about this. Like I experienced similar when my business grew so quickly where it was like, this is what I've wanted for so long. And it just doesn't feel like what I thought it would feel like. Reality hasn't changed that much other than there's just more cash in the bank and more people buying from me. But the rest of my reality hasn't changed. And all of these things that you think are going to happen don't always happen. Yeah. And it's like, oh, what's next then? And then you keep on going. You keep on going. You actually stop to, you forget to stop and enjoy the journey along the way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really glad you shared that. Um, so another thing, Jerisha, like one of, so one of my clients and friend, um, Annie Gishuru had a question that she really wanted me to ask you in this episode. And so in one of your Instagram posts a little while back, you talked about how less than 5% of business owners will ever make a million dollars. And you said, if you want to be part of the 5%, remember this, you have to make hard decisions. The decisions you have to make as your business grows become more uncomfortable, the bigger your business gets. And Annie's question that she really wanted me to ask you was, what are some of the difficult decisions you've had to make in your business? And in particular, decisions that you made back in your first year compared with now? Oh, gosh. Um Shout out to Annie asking the real question. Okay, I know. Just really good question. <laughs> the difficulty of the decision making, like my decisions cost more money now versus when I was like in my first year of business. A mistake literally cost me more money than it used to cost me. So like um, a decision that I've been making recently and is still in the thick of it is like what to do with my profit. You know, I think we don't, I look at my business as a vehicle and the profit is uh, the profit and how I leverage that profit and how I use that profit. My biggest goal is how am I using the profit of my business to build my personal net worth outside of this entity of a business. So decisions that I'm making right now that feel ridiculously uncomfortable and they do feel hard because it's foreign to me is like, what tax strategy should we deploy? What investment vehicle should I put this profit in? Um, and I don't know you, all this making money is one skill set, knowing how to manage and multiply your money outside in, in, by putting it in other vehicles outside of the work that you do is, is an entirely different skill set. So, you know, I have may I've invested in hedge funds. I've invested in real estate. I've invested in, um, like traditional, like stock market portfolio. I've invested in crypto. I've lost probably $200,000 doing that. And it's like, that's just the cost of learning. It's the cost of learning now because it's like, I don't know these vehicles. I don't know 
you know, I'm, I'm still learning how to manage all that, having the right tax uh, structure, having the right legal setup structure, wills and trusts. Like I've probably lost $200,000 in the past 18 months learning how to manage my money at a higher level. Now, in the beginning of my business where I was maybe, you know, trying to learn, it's, this is a, that's one skill set. That skill set just costs more money sometimes to learn the lesson. But year one, you know, me learning the skill set of just how the online info world work and you buy a course, a course, you know, I remember one of the first courses I bought was like $1,200 and I was ready to like, I mean, I was butt clenched. Okay. Like I was like super terrified and super nervous or, the very first private one-on-one coach I hired, she was $3,000. And that was like the most money I had ever spent on anything out of pocket. You know, I paid for college, but like this felt totally different. You know, it wasn't some loan. It wasn't attached to some quote unquote guaranteed job. Like, and I'll never forget, I was in the driving, the drive-through of Boston Market. And I was like, make, I was on the phone with this coach making a buying decision. I said, I'm like, I have to pull over. I'm like, I just hold on a second. I muted my phone and like put my order in. I'm like, let me just get the kids menu because I'm about to spend $3,000. And I'm just like, I'm gonna just try to save this little $8 from the adult menu to the kids menu. But like that decision to learn a new skill set was $1,500 or $3,000 in comparison to the decisions that I'm making now on uh, buying an investment property or investing in alternative investment vehicles. Like those same decisions and I'm still learning will still cost you like it's a totally different cost. So th- that's like an example of, you know, learning a new skill set and how much does it cost to learn to learn something new. And sometimes back in the day, I used to buy a course that was 2000 or invest in a coach. I invested in another coach, maybe year three, and it was like $18,000. And that was teaching you how to use webinar funnels to sell digital courses. I spent $18,000 to realize that that was not the business model for me, that running paid ads, selling a you know $2,000 or less digital course using webinars was not the right business model. It cost me $18,000 to learn that lesson. Um, it's not to say that the program didn't work. It just realized that that model wasn't what aligned best for me, wasn't what aligned best with the offer that I wanted to sell or who I wanted to serve. So, you know, that's why I say decisions feel harder. Um as they cost more money to make, like that you're, you're <laughs> making bigger decisions. And, you know, I think, you know, so it just, you, you can feel that gravity. Um, yeah. I think the other thing too is there is, I have more to lose now. I think at the beginning of my business, there was a lot of things I was willing to do and try blindly. Like I was willing to take risks faster. Uh, cause I, nobody was watching. Like I, I didn't, I didn't have people. I wasn't afraid of people watching me fail because there wasn't a lot of people watching me in the first place. So I was willing to take more risks, try more things, publicly look stupid quicker and faster versus now. I'm like, when I'm making decisions, I my one decision that I make impacts more than just me now. It impacts all the agencies and contractors that I work with. It impacts the employees. Like, well, I have two full-time employees now on my team and that's transitioning, but the one or two team members that I have on my team at a given time, like, um, and I, and I feel like I have more to lose. Like there's, you know, I don't have a massive audience, but it's like, I have more people watching. I have more of my clients watching. A lot of my clients mimic what they see me doing. So when I'm making a decision, I'm always making a decision publicly with this conscious awareness of, there's a responsibility that you hold because you 
you are a mentor and you are an authority to other people. So you have to be mindful of the decisions that you make or how you're going about making them because um, people are watching. So I need I need to offer more context now when I am doing things or when I'm presenting things versus in the beginning. I, I feel like I could just do whatever I want it whenever I want it because my decisions didn't impact anybody else but me. That was a phenomenal mm. question. Yeah, right. I know Annie's fantastic, <laughs> but it, so it's almost like it's it's that quote: "New level, new devil." Right? Next level, new devil, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where the decisions that feel hard at one level, when you get to that next level, you look back and you're like, "Oh, I could make that decision again quite easily." Yeah. But then the next, it's like you unlock that next level of decisions, and they become harder and more you've got other people at stake and it's not just you and it's more expensive like I yeah that's there's a whole lot in there and I also I've been through this as well with when my business grew one of the big things that was blocking me was the fear of responsibility that being responsible for team members for my audience for being a leader all of that that comes with that level that next level and I don't think enough people talk about this Everyone wants to have a hundred thousand followers and make a million dollars and they want all of the, they want all of the fun, shiny success, but they don't understand just how much is underneath that, how much responsibility yeah. there is. I mean, when so, I love that you say that because I've, I have, uh, controlled, I, I feel like I've this illusion of control. I have tried to control how fast my public audience has grown. I'm like, how much money can I make with the least amount of people knowing who I am? And, like I look at my peers who are doing more than a million dollars in profit a year or doing multi seven figures a year. I mean, their audience sizes are 10 times the size of mine, like hundreds of thousands of Instagram subscribers, YouTube followers, like all the things, email lists of over a hundred thousand. I'm like, my email list is like 12,000 people right now. My Instagram following is 40,000, like, which is still an audience, but for the magnitude of how much I make, it's much smaller in comparison. And, you know, you talking about this increase, this fear of responsibility, like I've always had this, I have had this fear of, I mean, I don't mind being seen and like being known, but like not, not to the masses, masses, masses. Like that scared me this entire journey. And that's one of the things I'm working through right this year. I'm like one of our, our core goals for this year is to have a dominant omnipresence, meaning we're like every, I don't care what platform you come on, you will see my face. Or, or read my words. And we're increasing the output. We're increasing the quality of content and the quality of the production. Um, and I'm like, ugh, like, you know, pretty much for the most part, people who followed me agreed with my opinion. I never had like hateful comments or mean comments or like, I don't agree with you. And now that's starting to happen. And now that we're in 2023, we're putting this effort behind it. And it's like, that has been one of, when you say fear, responsibility and team, that's the fear I've been working through of the responsibility that comes with having a large audience, with having a lot of people following and watching and dealing with all these now opinions that don't agree with me anymore because they're like yeah. strangers and new people and all the things. It's like opening yourself up to criticism of strangers because when you're, yeah, when your audience knows you and they love you, they're not going to criticize you publicly, but like strangers, yeah, they won't, they won't think twice about, um, the best one I got was just another skid mark trying to make a buck. That was a comment that I got on a Facebook ad. So sorry. they don't they don't think twice about that. But <laughs> you remember that though, you know, yeah. like. But it's just like so. Yeah, I'm, I I feel you. Like I've always been about bo- be bold, share your perspective, 
um, you know, don't care what people think, but I'm like, I've like, I've, I think I personally believe that up until a point, like, don't care what people think. You know, now I'm like, you really have to really not care or be, learn how to better self-regulate your emotions and your response now because more people are seeing it who are not familiar with you. So oh, I just felt that one deep, Steph. I felt that. Yeah, one. me too. Me too. <laughs> so the main reason I brought you on today was to chat about group programs because this is something that is very much in your zone of genius. And I like, I've never really run. I've maybe run one group program, but I've never run a proper structured group program. So I really, I'm here to pick your brain on behalf of my listeners on group programs. So in terms of creating a group, a group program, what would you say the biggest differences are in designing that versus designing an online course? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, even before we talk about even the design of the curriculum, it's really about the psychology of the buyer. Because even if you're dealing with the same individual, if that individual is buying a DIY digital course versus if that individual is investing in a group coaching program, their expectations of the experience, their expectations of access to the creator, their expectations of what support looks like is totally different. So how you, um, you know, nurture, convert, like enroll and support even if it's the same person, when it's a group coaching program, their expectations are different. And I think that's a really important, like, step one to recognize because what we've, I've worked with hundreds of individuals who transition into group coaching. And I'd say about a third of them had a digital course prior to, and they revamped their digital course and, ele- and elevated into a, a coaching program or a group program. And that's probably one of the biggest beliefs they have to navigate is that just because you might be selling to the same person, you're selling a totally different container, which means it comes with different expectations. And your biggest job as I think as a coach or as a business owner, as a leader is managing your prospects expectations um, in accordance to whatever it is that you're actually selling them. So that's like, you know, it's not necessarily part of like the, deli- well, it's part of the delivery, but to me, that's a, an important like um distinction that we need to pull out. But when people start transitioning into group, Um, one of the biggest things you have to overcome is like there's new objections of why, what's the value of group delivery versus private one-on-one and what's the value of group delivery just from a container experience versus done DIY digital course. So you're going to be dealing with new objections, um, new expectations. And there is, I think, to a new level of responsibility that you bear when you lead a group program. Uh, cause now you're, you're not just creating trainings and teaching somebody what to do but now in a group like that's what that's what you do in a digital course but when you're transitioning into a group coaching program you're also still a teacher where you're teaching them what to do but you're also um there's this underlying thread of where coaching kicks in where you're really teaching them how to think you're helping them evolve into who it is they need to become not just teaching them the information that they need to know so that dynamic now when you step into leading a group coaching program, you still have to be a phenomenal teacher, just like you would need to be a great teacher when you're lead- when you're creating a DIY course. Um, but now you also need to start being consciously aware of what does it look like for me to be a really effective coach. And that's really teaching people how to think, uh, helping them step into that identity of who they need to become so they can do the work that's required that you are teaching them how to do. So I think bridging that gap is uh, as another component or a dynamic of being leading a great coaching program is not just telling them what to do, 
but also teaching them how to think and then helping them actually become who they need to be to actually do the work that you've taught them how to do and making sure there's congruency and alignment um, amongst that learning experience. And the other dynamic that's really important is how you intentionally curate your community. When most people sell digital courses, the only real qualifier is can you pay? There's a checkout page or a sales page and it's read this thing, get all these amazing bonuses. You know, you pay $300, $500, $900, $1,000, somewhere usually less than three grand. But when you start creating a group coaching program, people are not just investing in the educational, how effective is the teaching? That's a huge, that's a cost of entry. Like you need to make sure that your curriculum is delivering on the thing that you promised. But the other thing that you're now responsible for, it's kind of that, it's kind of like the fine print of leading a group coaching program. Like most people don't really advertise it heavily on their, on their application page or a prospect isn't going to necessarily like lead with this when they're making their decision on a sales conversation. But the thing that really allows your students to get incredible results and allows your students to have a great experience is how intentionally you curate the students that are in the program. And I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of having an application-based uh, process when you are doing enrollment because curating is curating a group community is matters so much more than just can this person financially pay because um, you want to you're not them paying needs to be cost of entry that's obviously a, an important qualification but the other dynamic is does this person align with the promise that they're selling? Does, and do the, do these students that I'm enrolling in this program, do they hold the similar values in regards to how they want to grow, who they are, what their identity is? Like, is there a shared collective or some alignment from a values, um, identity and philosophy on how they want to grow perspective? Cause that, if you enroll a bunch of people who are qualified in the sense you can help them and they can pay, but there's a huge disconnect and a misalignment on values, identity, and the philosophy in which you're teaching them to apply to get that result. Uh, the dynamic of the experience can be like terrible. Like it can be, it can go, it can, all the on paper criteria is perfect, but the emotional experience, the feeling of the experience for your students can be way off. Um, and I think that's an, a component of group coaching that I don't hear a lot of business coaches talking about the importance of, um, but that to me is what I think really lends to like, I'm at 60% of my annual revenue is based off of lifetime value of customers. So individuals who in, who don't leave, who end up staying for more than 12 months. And I, I look at why have we been able to create that dynamic? It's because of how intentional we were with curating the community and making sure we have the same, like, I don't want to say necessarily say like-minded but aligned in values, aligned in identity, aligned in the philosophy of what we're embodying on how we're helping them get the promise of the program. Um, so I think those are like three major components. I mean, maybe a bonus fourth is I think really great group coaching programs have a really strong and a very clear program promise. Uh, and the reason why I say a program promise is so important, I advocate it through and through when you're leading a group program it's because when you're taking people through a three-month, a six-month, a 12-month group experience, there needs to be a clear destination. It can't just be like, we help you grow your business or we help you kite college. It's not like you just get a degree. You, you there When you go to college or that's a group, in my opinion, a group coaching learning experience, there is a clear, like you're, you're, you're um, getting a degree in a specialized, specific area of discipline. 
Like you don't just go and get an engineering degree. You get an engineering degree in civil engineering with a specialty in structures or a specialty in, I don't know, bridge design or something like there's a, there's a specialty focus. And I think the best group coaching programs have a specialized focus and there's a clear program promise so that when every client finished, it's like we all achieved some very similar specific result, which also helps with the specificity of how you curate the community as well. Mm, I love the specific outcomes. I mean, that's, I think that's so applicable to anything these days. Like it's such a, ah, the online education space, online coaching space is so crowded. And I think honestly, the only way for somebody to stand out now is to get so specific on their promises. Like it's not enough to be like, yeah, I help you grow your business. Like what you said, you know, that's just, it's so vague now. And there are millions of other people maybe hundreds of thousands of other people selling that same specific mm-hmm. outcome. So you need to be even more specific. Um, but the one thing that really caught my attention in what you were saying was about vetting that group and curating that group. I know a lot of people listening to this are uh, in that fear space of what happens if I launch my group program and only five people apply and I don't have the luxury of curating the group. What would you say to somebody in that situation? Uh, well, still curate those five. Like, I think it, it, more when more than two people join, you have a group. So if there's, you know, if you've got two people in you, that's a triangle, that's a little group, okay? You got a whole situation happening there. Um, and I think that the curation happens over time. So in the very beginning, you may not have 50 people to gather data from or 30 people that are inside of the enrollment. But even if you have five, um, in that, in the beginning, you might say yes to all five because you're, it, part of the qualifying leads, it takes time for you to really understand the nuances of the data as it correlates to the offer that you're selling. So probably your first two or three launches, like up to your first maybe 30 clients, a lot of what you're doing in the beginning is gathering data. You're not necessarily, and then, and using your intuition and your gut and, and your process to also make sure to say no to the clients that you know are not a good fit. Um, but in the beginning, I would focus on data collection What and starting to pay attention to the patterns of what makes a client get a result, what made a client not get a result, uh, what made this client absolutely incredible to work with, what made this client absolutely not a fan, not a fan to work with, like, and using those first 30 clients as data collection. So you're still helping them get results. Um, what is lacking in your curriculum, you will make up for in your coaching and in your direct coaching that you can provide your clients. And even what's lacking, what was lacking in your qualification process, you will make up for um, in the in the direct client experience. So you might have to, you know, maybe nuances of customization. And I wouldn't recommend a ton of customization, but you'll have to fill in those gaps for what was lacking in the process because you were still discovering what the process needed to be. And you were still really refining what your preferences were around what makes a qualified lead and how we need to structure the client experience as it relates to the promise that you're selling. So in the beginning, like it's, that's normal. Like, so I would say to somebody who's like, well, I only have five people. I don't have the luxury of being selective. What do I do? I'm like, that's accurate. You don't have the luxury necessarily to be selective, um, but just be aware, be alert and and pay attention to the patterns that you notice. And when you relaunch, implement some of those patterns that you notice and you just focus on continuous refinement over time. Um, I just think one one other thing I think is really important is that most and I have to really like drill this into my client's head is that you're, you, you don't just launch one group and then 
launch it one time and then go create an entirely new <laughs> offer. Like, oh, we're on the same page. <laughs> so like, it's like the iPhone. Yeah. Like, look at Apple. Like, the iPhone to me is one of like the best examples of this is, or Jordan with it, with the shoes. Like, they didn't just, iPhone didn't keep creating, they kept relaunching the exact same product, but they kept making, they, they launched iPhone number one, got data from users, made improvements, improved the phone, relaunched the phone, recycle, repeat, 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 repeat. And I think, as a coach, we have to, I think, I hope that more of us can adopt that mindset of, I'm not like a one hit wonder where it's like, and I'm not one night standing my audience over and over and over again. Like we need to have some longevity in the relationship. And that's really the only way to really get that data that you need to, so that you can start being more selective um, with how you qualify and who you admit into your program over time as well. And it's also so much easier than creating something new every single time. Like I've seen so many people because I predominantly I do course launches, right? And I've seen so many people who are like creating and launching new courses every single time. And I'm like, hang on, I've just launched my same course six times and each time it predictably brings in good revenue. And it's so much easier the more that you do it. And I imagine group programs are exactly the same as 100%. that. 100%. Because it's yeah. not just about the the launching and the selling, but it's also uh, the ease that comes with being able to deliver the same thing over and over again, but with improvements and with enhancements. And I think the other great thing about group coaching programs is being able to anticipate the client's needs and anticipate mm. where they're going to get stuck. And I know on day 14... Clients usually have a freak out about their program promise and niching down. They, they, day 14 comes by and they, I don't know what happens. It's like something out of stranger things comes down and like erases their memory. They're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who I'm helping. Like I, I'm not capable. I'm not qualified. Even my millionaire clients had this exact same moment, but it happens at day 14. And I only know that because I've relaunched the same offer. I don't know, probably nine times over the last three years. Like I know where, I know where they're going to get stuck. I know when they're going to get the highs. And because I, I have that data, because I've relaunched so many times, I can now like methodically design my client experience to align with not just what they need to know, but align with their emotional response as they're going through the journey. And we can build that into the process now. And we can prepare them for it of like, next week, you might be feeling this. Here's what you can do if this happens on how to like regulate yourself out of it. And like they, every time they're like, how did you know? And I'm like, cause we have relaunched this thing a million and a half times. We know. <laughs> so I, I'm just, I'm like, I wanted to throw that in there too, because being able to properly qualify a lead comes with, um, this intimacy that you have built with your prospect and intimacy that you have in your relationship and the knowing of that relationship that you've developed over time that. You don't know on the first time, but you know the second, third, fourth time that you launch it. You can you 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 know more and more and more. Mm. And like obviously, a lot of the a lot of the curating and the vetting is going to happen based on the content that's in the program, the promise, the people. But are there some specific red flags or green flags that somebody should look out for when they're going through the vetting process of the application forms? Any like well, general ones? Yeah. I mean, I think the sales conversation, this is important though. The sales conversation starts the moment somebody starts consuming your content, not consuming the curriculum. So I think too many people wait too long to start the qualification process. Like they wait until somebody applies. And I'm like, the qualification process started with 
whatever public content that you have been publishing, that started the conversation. So I think that we need to start the qualification process way before somebody ever raises their hand to even like express interest in working with us. So I think one of the biggest tips that can maybe give here is all those things that you're private, all those objections that you're privately handling on sales conversations, all those like beliefs that you wish were shifted that, you know, when you get on the sales call or you review like 10 applications, you're like, oh my gosh, like they all think this. I wish they thought this. All that private stuff that you're either talking to your business besties and think about or that like you're convincing somebody of on a sales call, all that private stuff needs to become public content. So the, the, the sales conversation needs to start from the moment they start consuming the content. Um, so that's like one of the biggest things we teach clients and that I also have, have always, you know, have been doing over the last four years and continue to do is start the qualification process before they apply. But normally when somebody applies and when I'm, when I'm screening applications, I can tell by usually the, the length of the response. Um, that's something that I pay attention to before I even start reading words. And I, I learned this from Lego. Surprisingly enough, I can't remember how many years ago this was, um, but Lego sent out this survey. They noticed like a decrease in sales in like uh, just normal Lego sets or whatever. So they they sent out a survey to like Lego users or Lego purchasers and just asked them like, what more can we be doing for you? What other products would you want? And there was this overwhelming uh, request for like, your Lego sets are too complicated. Make them easier. And so Lego launched a lot. Well, they still sell them now, but they launched our new product where they made those like micro Lego sets of like 30 pieces, 60 pieces, like the more easier set. And their revenue tanked after they did that, even though most people said that's what they wanted. They went back to the data. The people who said they wanted like a simpler Lego set, they gave really short, vague, like really brief responses to the feedback. They failed to pay attention to their Olympians. And their Olympians were the individuals who wrote paragraphs. Like these are like the diehard Lego like connoisseurs. And all of, even though it was a smaller segment, those individuals gave longer responses. And their request was your Lego sets are too easy. Make them more complicated. And then Lego launched, you know, they, they, they sell both these sets of products, but now they, they now have a full line of like, you know, like the 4,000 piece Lego sets of like build the Disney castle or like, Build, you can build like a Nintendo set out of Legos. Like they're so freaking hard and revenue went up. And I think sometimes when we're, it's easy for us to pay attention to the loudest voice. But instead, when you're qualifying leads, I think that instead of paying attention to like the loudest voice, how can we pay attention to like the most thoughtful response, the most in-depth response? Because if somebody is taking, that's like a quick indicator. It's not a surefire thing. But I'd say majority of the time when the prospects are the ones that actually take the time to give more thorough responses to the application questions, uh, they usually, if, if they're like, if they're willing to take the time to do the application as it's outlined to be done, they're usually willing to take the time to trust the process and do the work as it's instructed to be applied. Usually. So I look, I, before I even read words, I look at, I, I, when I'm looking through applications, I'm like, who are the ones that actually gave thoughtful responses to my open-ended questions? And then I will start with them first. So like, I, and usually those individuals end up being gr- great clients, like, because, you know, they're, they're taking the time to do it versus like, you know, half doing responses or not even reading the question or like whatever. So that's like something outside of like knowing 
there's things that we look for that are based off our specific qualifiers. So that's just a high level um, way to kind of get a feel for a prospect before you even like dive into the details. Mm. Are there any like red flags or things to look for around whether somebody's going to expect way more access to you than they would be entitled oh. to as part of a group program. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm really, 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 really anal on making sure both parties have full understanding of what they're getting involved in. So one of the things that we do, um, and you could definitely do is we have a program contract, but before anybody signs a contract, before we collect payment, we have something we call like a program promise statement. And the statement has two sides. It's like, this is everything you can expect from me and my company. This is everything that we expect from you. Do you think this is fair? Is this something that you feel comfortable agreeing to? Because managing those expectations is a really important thing and making sure that we are in our content, uh, communicating what a client should expect in the free content, not just on the application page, not just during a sales conversation. Um, and that what we, we, like we nail those things home in our free content. Um, because I, I really don't have that many red flags anymore because my content makes up for a lot of that now. But prior to, I mean, some people would, you know, everybody's, everybody's experiences of group programs too is also very different. So like if you're in the beginning stages and you're like trying to catch red flags on my application process, I'd probably ask, have you ever been enrolled in a group coaching program before? If so, what was your experience like? What did you love? What did you not love? So that you can get context. And then if there is something that they loved in our, and then another question you can ask on your application is, um, like, what are your expectations? Like, what do you expect this experience to be like? And what do you expect to have to like, what work, like, what do you, what do you expect that you're going to have to do to get the result that we're promising here? And I think it's just important to ask, like, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of like legit red flags. Like sometimes when people are overly eager, they rarely convert. Like when they're like too eager, too fast, too soon, like it's really, really, it's like, it's, I don't know. Sometimes when it's like too eager, those clients end up not either, either end up not enrolling or they end up, um, burning out, not burning out, but their, their candle flame burns out mm. just as fast as they were like eagerly excited. Like it's they're like, Oh my God, I wonder this is the best thing ever. Like, da, 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 da. And then two days later, they're like, yeah, I just don't know if this is the right decision for me. Like, I'm pretty, like, I think, I, you know, it's like, where was, where did all that huffy puffy stuff go? Um, yeah, that happens a lot with online courses. Like the people who sign up because, I don't know, like maybe they really resonated with the sales message or they got really excited and then they never even log in and look at module one. Oh, it's like, what happened? I, I, yeah. one, this is like one legit flag is that if somebody is a referral, um, if they're like, I haven't consumed any of your content, I don't really know what it is that you sell, but my friend said that they love you and I'm buying because she joined the program. Those are usually like, those have never worked out for me. Um, because if somebody's just buying because their friend bought, they're usually buying because of either like FOMO or they're buying because they want to stay in close proximity to whatever their friend is doing. And this program might be great for their friend. But that individual is not yet sold on the promise that we're selling. They're probably not even sold on the work that's required. That that is one legit red flag that I've like I've had like three people join in that regard, and it normally never works out. That's a good one to look out for. So I want to I want to pivot and talk a little bit about the 
online coaching industry, online education industry, but particularly online coaching industry. Um, cause I know you've been, you, you've talked about this a little bit on Instagram, but I'm really curious to know, like, what are your predictions for the industry as a whole this year? Oh man, I literally just either it got released today or a Monday. Oh, I haven't seen that one today. Because we brought back the podcast. Oh my gosh, finally. Um, but the, I think I either got released on Monday or it's getting released next week. It might have got released on Monday this week, but I did a full episode on predictions. But I think one of the biggest things for this year, oh man, I'm like, like video content is not going anywhere. I mean, I don't know if that's a prediction, but I think that that is something that, you know, continuously putting out long form video content is something that I think more of us need to be doing proactively where you're showing your face, sharing your perspective and doing that on some sort of consistent cadence, um, I think is going to be a non-negotiable as we move into this year. And I think the bigger thing for the online coaches in particular is how we are designing our business models and the level of like what we are including in our coaching programs. I think since 2019 to 2022, um, I think a lot of coaches got lazy from like, mm-hmm. if we look at 2019 to 2022, a lot of like, a lot of, a lot of coaches got lazy. We like, I think our industry, a lot of the messages that I saw was like, enroll $10,000 clients without ever having to talk to your prospect yeah. get on sales calls without any <sighs> form of conversation. And it worked like it worked like, and I think part of the reason why like there was, I feel like there was a, a huge decline in access of actual true coaching support being offered in group programs. Um, there was a, a decrease in access to how active the sales conversation would be, like whether or not you would actually get to talk to somebody, whether that's on a phone, whether that's on a Zoom call or whether that's in like a DM chat, but there was some form of communication. Um, I just think passive selling is going to be really difficult if you're selling something more than three grand this year and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I think this, I just think we can't keep being lazy marketers and lazy salespeople anymore. Like I think too many of us got away with highway robbery because there was an increase of discretionary spending in the marketplace. More consumers had more discretionary income to buy things, whether that was because of PPP loans, people applying, you know, people was out here applying for PPP loans and SBA loans whether they were in distress or not and getting thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. And technically it was legal, but like that was extra discretionary income that they could go make buying decisions with. Um, You know, delays in student loan payments, delays in mortgage payments, that's extra discretionary income people were using to make investments. So I think because there was extra discretionary spending available to most of our consumers, there was also um a, de- a decrease in discretion when, how they were making buying decisions. Absolutely. Fast forward now where student loan pay, I think student loans in America though are still delayed, but they're about to kick back in. People, there are no more delays on mortgage payments. If anything, people's interest rates on new home purchases have gone up. Like, so if they're making new investments in home, like there's, there's less discretion, you know, a curtain of eggs is like $9, $8. I was like, wow. <laughs> or is this like a nationwide shortage? Just, like, I don't understand. Um, but now that there's a less discretionary spending available, that means there's a higher level of discretion when people are making investment decisions. And I think the the pendulum is swinging back where people's expectations are like, I need some certainty. I need to feel some security when I'm making this investment decision. I want to know that I'm going to be supported because people are going back to work. Kids are going back to school. Like 
everybody's eyeballs are not just stuck on a phone because they're stuck in a house anymore. We're competing with normal distractions that if you were launching or selling in 19, 20, 21, we didn't have those same distractions that our clients and our students were coming up against. So I just think that the, the that's probably the biggest prediction is that like passive selling is going to be harder and harder the more premium priced your offer is. Um, this lack of actual coaching support being offered inside of group programs is going to be like, I think people are not going to be out here willy dilly trying to pay for that. I think it's going to be harder to sell a program that doesn't offer like more like actual coaching support or act, some sort of active support in the program. Um, and I think that that's just, if you're not doing those things, like no shade, but I just think that, you know, understand kind of what I went back to earlier of why I think I've been successful for so consistently is understanding the business cycles. There was a time where that was the norm and maybe was okay and it worked and it made great money, but I think the business cycle is shifting. And we need to shift with it in regards to our business model, our sales process and our client experience and how we're designing up, how we're designing all those things operationally to be able to meet that demand and meet that need of our consumer um, and meet that need before we lose the client. Mm. And I think also like, I think personally, like one of the biggest shifts I think we're going to see is a huge shift from what we saw in 2021, 2022, where People were purely marketing their coaching off of the number of sales that they were making. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this, where people are like, oh, I just had a $10,000 day, $50,000 week. And then they'd be like, you know, that was just like their entire marketing. There was no actual substance to their content. I think that's one of the things I really love about what you share online is you're constantly sharing really valuable content. You're not just there like, hey, look how much money I made. I'm like, my team was like, we don't share any testimonials. I was like, we actually maybe need to start doing that a little bit more this year. Like we haven't, we, we never share testimonials, but I agree with you so much on that because that used to be my entire newsfeed. It was just like, t- like you said, $10,000 a day, $80,000 launch. But I'm like, it's funny now because I don't see that messaging that much on my timeline. <laughs> and I think that kind of it was a rude awakening. I think a lot of people had huge success in 2020 or 2021 where their revenue just like double, triple skyrocketed in that one year. And I think novice business owners can have this expectation that, oh my God, if it was this big this year, it must be double or triple that next year. And because for a lot of us, if that's the only time period that you really experienced business growth was what during some of the biggest, like I think the online education industry benefited a ton financially from what was going on with the pandemic and with everything else. Like, a lot of us did because most, you know, brick and mortar shut down. People needed to figure out, like, if you were teaching people how to make money or get leads online, like, we were filling a real need that the marketplace had. But if those were those are your biggest years and, like, where you did primarily majority of your business, you don't know like, an economy where, where, like, the whole world isn't, you know, isn't in need of the exact thing that you're selling. So, like you said, of actually having more substance versus your whole marketing strategy just be, sell, you know, selling you the, the lifestyle of what making money can be. Like there has to be more to the story than that. But that that's a really good point. Like that was a really good, I co-signed one. Like, yeah, yeah, I think that's going to change big time. Well, Jerisha, we are running out of time. This has been a wonderful chat. I didn't expect it to go this long, to be honest. Normally my interviews are pretty short, sharp and sweet. But for our listeners, where can they find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more from you? 
Yeah, if you're listening, my biggest ask is that let's continue the conversation. Take a screenshot of you listening to this episode. Tag Steph and myself on Instagram. I'm at Jerisha Hawk. And like, let's just continue the convo. Like, just tag us on Instagram stories and I will reply, I will reply and send a DM. Um, cause it's like these interviews that I, I love doing them. This is probably like one of the best interviews. You're fin- like, Thank great you. questions. This was phenomenal to conversation. But I'm like, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Let's keep it going. So that's where I would recommend people go. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, we just, we are relaunching the podcast this year. So I'm at Jerisha said on iTunes, Spotify, and we're going to be uploading all of our podcast episodes to YouTube. So if you just Google Jerisha in any platform, I'm there, but definitely tag us on your Instagram story so we can know that you're listening and cont- continue the conversation. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jerisha, for this wonderful conversation. Likewise, this was the best. <laughs> All right, that is it for today's episode. If you haven't already hit subscribe, make sure you hit the plus button in Apple Podcasts or the follow button in Spotify and you'll get each new episode straight to your podcast app every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next time.